Section 5 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 7, Great Women, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Joan of Arc, Part 2. There was, therefore, a great admiration and respect for this girl, leading to the kindest and most honorable treatment of her from both prelates and nobles. But it was not a chivalric admiration. She did not belong to a noble family, nor did she defend an institution. She was regarded as a second Deborah, commissioned to deliver a people. Nor could a saint have done her work. Bernard could kindle a crusade by his eloquence, but he could not have delivered Orleans. It required someone who could excite idolatrous homage. Only a woman in that age was likely to be deified by the people, some immaculate virgin. Our remote German ancestors had in their native forest a peculiar reverence for woman. The priestesses of Germanic forests had often incited to battle. Their warnings or encouragements were regarded as voices from heaven. Perhaps the deification and worship of the Virgin Mary, so hardy and poetical in the Middle Ages, may have indirectly aided the mission of the Maid of Orleans. The common people saw one of their own order arise and do marvelous things, bringing kings and nobles to her cause. How could she thus triumph over all the inequalities of feudalism unless divinely commissioned? How could she work what seemed to be almost miracles if she had not a supernatural power to assist her? Like the Regina Angulorum, she was Virgo Castissima. And if she was unlike common mortals, perhaps an inspired woman, what she promised would be fulfilled. In consequence of such a feeling, an unbounded enthusiasm was excited among the people. They were ready to do her bidding, whether reasonable or unreasonable to them, for there was a sacred mystery about her a reverence that extorted obedience. Worldly-wise statesmen and prelates had not this unbounded admiration, although they doubtless regarded her as a moral phenomenon which they could not understand. Her advice seemed to set aside all human prudence. Nothing seemed more rash or unreasonable than to undertake the conquest of so many fortified cities with such feeble means. It was one thing to animate starving troops to a desperate effort for their deliverance. It was another to assault fortified cities held by the powerful forces which had nearly completed the conquest of France. The king came to meet the maid at Tours, and would have bestowed upon her royal honors, for she had rendered a great service. But it was not honors she wanted. She seemed to be indifferent to all personal rewards and even praises. She wanted only one thing, an immediate march to Reims. She even pleaded like a sensible general she entreated charles to avail himself of the panic which the raising of the siege of orleans had produced before the english could recover from it and bring reinforcements but the royal council hesitated it would imperil the king's person to march through a country guarded by hostile troops and even if he could reach reims it would be more difficult to take that city than to defend orleans the king had no money to pay for an army the enterprise was not only hazardous but impossible the royal councillors argued but to this earnest and impassioned woman, seeing only one point, there was no such thing as impossibility. The thing must be done. The council gave reasons. She brushed them away as cobwebs. What is impossible for God to do? Then they asked her if she heard the voices. She answered yes, that she had prayed in secret, complaining of unbelief, and that the voice came to her which said, Daughter of God, go on, go on, I will be thy help. Her whole face glowed and shone like the face of an angel. The king, half persuaded, agreed to go to Reims, but not until the English had been driven from the Loire. An army was assembled under the command of the Duke of Alencon, with orders to do nothing without the maid's advice. Joan went to Selles to prepare for the campaign, and rejoined the army mounted on a black charger, while a page carried her furled banner. 
the first success was against jargot a strongly fortified town where she was wounded but she was up in a moment and the place was carried and joan and alencon returned in triumph to orleans they then advanced against bauget another strong place not merely defended by the late besiegers of orleans but a powerful army under sir john falstaff and talbot was advancing to relieve it yet bauget capitulated the english being panic-stricken before the city could be relieved then the french and english forces encountered each other in the open field victory sided with the french and falstaff himself fled with the loss of three thousand men the whole district then turned against the english who retreated towards paris while a boundless enthusiasm animated the whole french army soldiers and leaders were now equally eager for the march to reims and yet the king ingloriously held back and the coronation seemed to be as distant as ever but joan with unexampled persistency insisted on an immediate advance and the king reluctantly set out for reims with twelve thousand men the first great impediment was the important city of troyes which was well garrisoned after five days were spent before it and famine began to be felt in the camp the military leaders wished to raise the siege and return to the south the maid implored them to perseverance promising the capture of the city within three days we would wait six said the archbishop of reims the chancellor and chief adviser of the king if we were certain we could take it joan mounted her horse made preparations for the assault cheered the soldiers working far into the night and the next day the city surrendered and charles attended by joan and his nobles triumphantly entered the city the prestige of the maid carried the day english soldiers dared not contend with one who seemed to be a favorite of heaven they had heard of orleans and jargot chalons followed the example of troyes then reims when the english heard of the surrender of troyes and chalons made no resistance and in less than a month after the march had began the king entered the city and was immediately crowned by the archbishop joan standing by his side holding her sacred banner this coronation was a matter of greater political importance charles had a rival in the youthful king of england the succession was disputed whoever should be first crowned in the city where the ancient kings were consecrated was likely to be acknowledged by the nation the mission of joan was now accomplished she had done what she had promised amid incredible difficulties and now kneeling before her anointed sovereign she said gracious king now is fulfilled the pleasure of god and as she spoke she wept she had given a king to france and she had given france to her king not by might not by power had she done this but by the spirit of the lord she asked no other reward for her magnificent service than that her native village should be forever exempt from taxation feeling that the work for which she was raised up was done she would willingly have retired to the seclusion of her mountain home but the leaders of france seeing how much she was adored by the people were not disposed to part with so great an instrument of success and joan too entered with zeal upon those military movements which were to drive away forever the english from the soil of france her career had thus far been one of success and boundless enthusiasm but now the tide turned and her subsequent life was one of signal failure her only strength was in the voices which had bidden her to deliver orleans and to crown the king she had no genius for war though still brave and dauntless though still preserving her innocence and her piety she now made mistakes she was also thwarted in her plans she became perhaps self-assured and self-confident and assumed prerogatives that only belonged to the king and his ministers which had the effect of alienating them they never secretly admired her nor fully trusted her charles made a truce with the great duke of burgundy who was in alliance with the english joan vehemently denounced the truce and urged immediate and uncompromising action but timidity or policy or political intrigues defeated her counsels the king wished to regain paris by negotiation all his movements were dilatory at last his forces approached the capital and occupied st denis it was determined to attack the city 
One corps was led by Joan, but in the attack she was wounded, and her troops, in spite of her, were forced to retreat. Notwithstanding the retreat and her wound, however, she persevered, though now all to no purpose. The king himself retired, and the attack became a failure. Still Joan desired to march upon Paris for a renewed attack, but the king would not hear of it, and she was sent with troops badly equipped to besiege La Charité, where she again failed. For four weary months she remained inactive. She grew desperate. The voices neither encouraged nor discouraged her. She was now full of sad forebodings, yet her activity continued. She repaired to Compiègne, a city already besieged by the enemy, which she wished to relieve. In a sortie she was outnumbered, and was defeated and taken prisoner by John of Luxembourg, a vassal of the Duke of Burgundy. The news of this capture produced great exhilaration among the English and Burgundians. Had a great victory been won, the effect could not have been greater. It broke the spell. The maid was human, like other women, and her late successes were attributed not to her inspiration, but to demoniacal enchantments. She was looked upon as a witch or as a sorceress, and was now guarded with especial care for a fear of rescue, and sent to a strong castle belonging to John of Luxembourg. In Paris, on receipt of the news, the Duke of Bedford caused te deums to be sung in all the churches, and the university and the vicar of the Inquisition demanded of the Duke of Burgundy that she should be delivered to ecclesiastical justice. The remarkable thing connected with the capture of the maid was that so little effort was made to rescue her. She had rendered to Charles an inestimable service, and yet he seems to have deserted her. Neither he nor his courtiers appeared to regret her captivity, probably because they were jealous of her. Gratitude was not one of the virtues of feudal kings. What sympathy could feudal barons have with a low-born peasant girl? They had used her, but when she could be useful no longer, they forgot her. Out of sight, she was out of mind, and, if remembered at all, she was regarded as one who could no longer provoke jealousy. Jealousy is a devouring passion, especially among nobles. The generals of Charles the Seventh could not bear to have it said that the rescue of France was effected, not by their abilities, but by the inspired enthusiasm of a peasant girl. She had scorned intrigues and baseness, and these marked all the great actors on the stage of history in that age. So they said it was a judgment of heaven upon her because she would not hear counsel. No offer for her ransom, no threats of vengeance came from beyond the Loire. But the English, who had suffered most from the loss of Orleans, were eager to get possession of her person, and were willing even to pay extravagant rewards for her delivery into their hands. They had their vengeance to gratify. They also wished it to appear that Charles the Seventh was aided by the devil, that his cause was not the true one, that Henry the Sixth was the true sovereign of France. The more they could throw discredit and obloquy upon the maid of Orleans, the better their cause would seem. It was not as a prisoner of war that the English wanted her, but as a victim whose sorceries could only be punished by death. But they could not try her and condemn her until they could get possession of her, and they could not get possession of her unless they bought her. The needy John of Luxembourg sold her to the English for ten thousand livres, and the Duke of Burgundy received political favors. The agent employed by the English in this nefarious business was Couchon, the Bishop of Beauvais, who had been driven out of his city by Joan, an able and learned man who aspired to the archbishopric of Rouen. He set to work to inflame the University of Paris and the Inquisition against her. The Duke of Bedford did not venture to bring his prize to Paris, but determined to try her in Rouen, and the trial was entrusted to the Bishop of Beauvais, who conducted it after the forms of the Inquisition. It was simply a trial for heresy. Joan tried for heresy. On that ground there was never a more innocent person tried by the Inquisition. Her whole life was notoriously virtuous. She had been obedient to the Church. She had advanced no doctrines which were not orthodox. She was too ignorant to be a heretic. She had accepted whatever her spiritual teacher had taught her. In fact, she was a Catholic saint. She lived in the ecstasies of religious faith like a Saint Teresa. 
She spent her time in prayer and religious exercises, she regularly confessed, and partook of the sacraments of the church. She did not even have a single skeptical doubt. She simply affirmed that she obeyed voices that came from God. Nothing could be more cruel than the treatment of this heroic girl, and all under the forms of ecclesiastical courts. It was the diabolical design of her enemies to make it appear that she had acted under the influence of the devil, that she was a heretic and a sorceress. Nothing could be more forlorn than her condition. No efforts had been made to ransom her. She was alone and unsupported by friends, having not a single friendly counsellor. She was carried to the castle of Rouen and put in an iron cage and chained to its bars. She was guarded by brutal soldiers, was mocked by those who came to see her, and finally was summoned before her judges, predetermined on her death. They went through the forms of a trial, hoping to extort from the maid some damaging confessions, or to entangle her with her sophistical and artful questions. Nothing, perhaps, on our earth has ever been done more diabolically than under the forms of ecclesiastical law. Nothing can be more atrocious than the hypocrisies and acts of inquisitors. The judges of Joan extorted from her that she had revelations, but she refused to reveal what these had been. She was asked whether she was in a state of grace. If she said she was not, she would be condemned as an outcast from divine favor. If she said she was, she would be condemned for spiritual pride. All such traps were set for this innocent girl. But she acquitted herself wonderfully well, and showed extraordinary good sense. She warded off their cunning and puerile questions. They tried every means to entrap her. They asked her in what shape St. Michael had appeared to her, whether or no he was naked, whether he had hair, whether she understood the feelings of those who had once kissed her feet, whether she had not cursed God in her attempt to escape at Bevoir, whether it was for her merit that God sent his angel, whether God hated the English, whether her victory was founded on her banner, or herself, when she had learned to ride a horse. The judges framed seventy accusations against her, mostly frivolous and some unjust, to the effect that she had received no religious training, that she had worn mandrake, that she dressed in man's attire, that she had bewitched her banner and her ring, that she believed her apparitions were saints and angels, that she had blasphemed, and other charges equally absurd. Under her rigid trials she fell sick, but they restored her, reserving her for a more cruel fate. All the accusations and replies were sent to Paris, and the learned doctors decreed, under English influence, that Joan was a heretic and a sorceress. After another series of insulting questions, she was taken to the marketplace of Rouen to receive sentence, and then returned to her gloomy prison, where they mercifully allowed her to confess and receive the sacrament. She was then taken in a cart, under a guard of eight hundred soldiers, to the place of execution, rudely dragged to the funeral pile, fastened to a stake, and fire set to the faggots. She expired, exclaiming, Jesus, Jesus, my voices, my voices. Thus was sacrificed one of the purest and noblest women in the whole history of the world, a woman who had been instrumental in delivering her country, but without receiving either honor or gratitude from those for whom she had fought and conquered. She died a martyr to the cause of patriotism, not for religion, but for her country. She died among enemies, unsupported by friends or by those whom she had so greatly benefited, and with as few religious consolations as it was possible to give. Never was there greater cruelty and injustice inflicted on an innocent and noble woman. The utmost ingenuity of vindictive priests never extorted from her a word which criminated her, though they subjected her to inquisitorial examinations for days and weeks. Burned as an infidel, her last words recognized the Saviour in whom she believed. Burned as a witch, she never confessed to anything but the voices of God. Her heroism, even at the stake, should have called out pity and admiration, but her tormentors were insensible to both. She was burned really from vengeance, because she had turned the tide of conquest. The Jews, says Michelet, never exhibited the rage against Jesus that the English did against the Pucelle, in whom purity, sweetness, and heroic goodness dwelt. 
Never was her life stained by a single cruel act. In the midst of her torments, she did not reproach her tormentors. In the midst of her victories, she swept for the souls of those who were killed. And while she incited others to combat, she herself did not use her sword. In man's attire, she showed a woman's soul. Pity and gentleness were as marked as courage and self-confidence. It is one of the most insolvable questions in the history why so little effort was made by the French to save the maid's life. It is strange that the University of Paris should have decided against her, after she had rendered such transcendent services. Why should the priests of that age have treated her as a witch, when she showed all the traits of an angel? Why should not the most unquestioning faith have preserved her from the charge of heresy? Alas! She was only a peasant girl, and the great could not bear to feel that the country had been saved by a peasant. Even chivalry, which worshipped women, did not come to Joan's aid. How great must have been feudal distinctions when such a heroic woman was left to perish! how deep the ingratitude of the king and his court to have made no effort to save her joan made one mistake after the coronation of charles the seventh she should have retired from the field of war for her work was done such a transcendent heroism could not have sunk into obscurity but this was not to be she was to die as a martyr to her cause after her death the english carried on war with a new spirit for the time and henry the sixth of england was crowned in paris at notre dame he was crowned however by an english not by a french prelate None of the great French nobles even were present. The coronation was a failure. Gradually all France was won over to the side of Charles. He was a contemptible monarch, but he was the legitimate king of France. All classes desired peace, all parties were weary of war. The Treaty of Arras in 1435 restored peace between Charles and Philip of Burgundy, and in the same year the Duke of Bedford died. In 1436 Charles took possession of Paris in fourteen forty five henry the sixth married margaret of anjou a kinswoman of charles the seventh in fourteen forty eight charles invaded normandy and expelled the english from the duchy which for four hundred years had belonged to the kings of england soon after guienne fell in fourteen fifty three calais alone remained to england after a war of one hundred years at last a tardy justice was done to the memory of her who had turned the tide of conquest the king, ungrateful as he had been, now ennobled her family and their descendants, even in the female line, and bestowed upon them pensions and offices. In 1452, twenty years after the martyrdom, the Pope commissioned the Archbishop of Reims and two other prelates, aided by an inquisitor, to inquire into the trial of Joan of Arc. They met Notre Dame. Messengers were sent into the country where she was born, to inquire into her history, and all testified, priests and peasants, to the moral beauty of her character, to her innocent and blameless life, her heroism in battle, and her good sense in counsel. And the decision of the prelates was that her visions came from God, that the purity of her motives and the good she did to her country justified her in leaving her parents and wearing a man's dress. They pronounced the trial at Rouen to have been polluted with wrong and calumny, and freed her name from every shadow of disgrace. The people of Orleans instituted an annual religious festival to her honor. The Duke of Orleans gave a grant of land to her brothers who were ennobled. The people of Rouen raised a stone cross to her memory in the marketplace where she was burned. In later times, the Duchess of Orleans, wife of the son and heir of Louis-Philippe, modeled with her own hands an exquisite statue of Joan of Arc. But the most beautiful and impressive tribute which has ever been paid to her name and memory was a fete of three days continuance in 1856, on the anniversary of the deliverance of Orleans, when the celebrated Bishop Dupanloup pronounced one of the most eloquent eulogies ever offered to the memory of a heroine or benefactor. That ancient city never saw so brilliant a spectacle as that which took place in honor of its immortal deliverer, who was executed so cruelly under the superintendence of a Christian bishop one of those iniquities in the name of justice which have so often been perpetrated on this earth. 
It was a powerful nation which killed her, and one equally powerful which abandoned her. But the martyrdom of Joan of Arc is an additional confirmation of the truth that it is only by self-sacrifice that great deliverances have been effected. Nothing in the moral government of God is more mysterious than the fate which usually falls to the lot of great benefactors. To us it seems sad and unjust, and nothing can reconcile us to the same but the rewards of a future and higher life. And yet amid the flames there arise the voices which save nations. Joan of Arc bequeathed to her country, especially to the common people, some great lessons, namely not to despair amid great national calamities, to believe in God as the true deliverer from impending miseries, who, however, works through natural causes, demanding personal heroism as well as faith. There was great grandeur in that peasant girl, in her exalted faith at Domremy, in her heroism at Orleans, in her triumph at Reims, in her trial and martyrdom at Rouen but unless she had suffered nothing would have remained of this grandeur in the eyes of posterity the injustice and meanness with which she was treated have created a lasting sympathy for her in the hearts of her nation she was great because she died for her country serene and uncomplaining amid justice cruelty and ingratitude the injustice of an ecclesiastical court presided over by a learned bishop the cruelty of the english generals and nobles the ingratitude of her own sovereign who made no effort to redeem her she was sold by one potentate to another as if she were merchandise as if she were a slave and those graces and illuminations which under other circumstances would have exalted her into a catholic saint like an elizabeth of hungary or a catherine of siena were turned against her by diabolical executioners as a proof of heresy and sorcery we repeat again never was enacted on this earth a greater justice never did a martyr perish with more triumphant trust in the god whose aid she had so uniformly invoked and it was this triumphant Christian faith, as she ascended the funeral pyre, which has consecrated the visions and the voices under whose inspiration the maid led a despairing nation to victory and a glorious future. Authorities Monstrelet's Chronicles Cousineau's Chronique de la Pucelle Histoire et Discours du Siege, published by the city of Orleans in 1576 Sismondes Histoire des Français de Barante's Histoire des Dues de Bourgogne, Michelet and Henri Martin's Histories of France, Vallet de Virevilliers' Histoire de Charles the Seventh, Henri Wayon, Janet Tucky's Life of Joan Arc, published by Putnam, 1880. End of section five.